Well, a few weeks back, I noticed, I, I, I noted rather that <clears throat> we are living amid the largest and fastest transformation of religion in American history. That's what we're living in the midst of, that in the last 25 years, 40 million people have walked away from the church. And to put that in context, that's more than came to know Christ in the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined. Combined have walked away in the last two decades. My thesis is that in our American context, we have completely lost our bearings on what it means to be the church. And that anyone who doesn't recognize that the American church is in crisis, crying out to be reimagined, is asleep. For some of us, our expectations have been so watered down by familiarity that we have to be awakened often by meeting someone outside of our normal routines. That happened to me a few years ago. In China, I met a young Chinese student named Sarah. Sarah was probably about five feet tall, uh, had to weigh less than 100 pounds, but by the end of our conversation, she was, she was a giant to me. Uh, she's the only child in her family, and Sarah had gone to college, which you need to know, college in China is not like America. It's very rare. It's a very big deal. Not many kids in China go to college. A lot was riding on her for her family. But while there, uh, Sarah met a girl from Auburn University who was there on a two-year stint with the campus ministry crew. And like most Chinese students, Sarah was eager to practice her English and the conversation soon turned to Jesus. And over the course of their friendship, Sarah said she was just amazed, but also very troubled by what she heard. Amazed to consider that in a sea of billions of people, that God knew her name, that she mattered to God, and that in her shame and honor culture, God related to her in a different way than anyone ever had, that he related to her by grace. Sarah had never heard that, and that God in Christ had come to earth and had covered her shame by dying on a cross to bring her to God. This was so intellectually compelling to Sarah as a college student, but it was also troubling because like many adult converts in China, her thoughts went immediately to the hundreds of millions, including her own family, her own grandparents, who have lived and died without ever hearing about Jesus. And Sarah wondered, did her new faith consign them to hell? She was really worried, so she did what a lot of adult converts do. She went home, and she tried to convert her whole family. But this is not one of those stories because her family was not interested. They were irate. I mean, this was their only child. This was their retirement plan. And here was Sarah talking about not just becoming a Christian, but joining crew out of college as full-time staff to tell other, Christians, uh, tell other Chinese students about Jesus. Now, she was told, you can serve God in any vocation. But Sarah felt so burdened for her people, most of whom she knew had never really heard about, much less understood the message of Jesus 
But her parents were ardently opposed. And didn't that same Bible, which she was now reading, tell her to honor her mother and her father? And Sarah said, I didn't know what to do. So she said, I fasted and I prayed for six months. And that hit my ear because I wasn't used to hearing people talk like that. I, I fasted and I prayed for six months. And then she said in near perfect English, a diminutive voice, she said, and then the Lord gave me Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 4, and that's how I ended up here. And that's all she said. That's all. She just assumed uh, that, that, I, that I knew Haggai, being an American pastor. And not wanting to further depreciate her view of American pastors, I, I nodded and just I gave the, hmm, Haggai. And of course, as soon as she left the room, I did what now some of you might be doing. I flipped it. Flipped my Bible open. And look, what is Haggai? So turn with me, if you will, to the back of the Old Testament between Zephaniah and Zechariah, your other two favorites, and you will find the tiny book of Haggai. What are you going to do when you get to heaven and you meet Haggai? And he says, how'd you like my book? Well, after today, you'll have an answer. Here's Haggai chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Take a good hard look at your life. Think it over. Verse 6. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Now, what did Sarah hear in this little letter that so captivated her? Well, for any history buffs out there, Haggai is one of the most historically precise books of the Bible. In 587 B.C., Babylon had conquered Jerusalem, sacking the city, destroying the temple, and carting away most of the inhabitants into exile. But in 539 B.C., Babylon itself was overcome by Persia. And the Persian king Cyrus had issued a decree allowing the Jews to return home and to rebuild their temple. And the returning exiles, about 50,000 in number, were led back to Jerusalem by a man named Zerubbabel. See verse 1. Now think at what it must have been like to walk back into the city. Once their pride of place, now in ruins. 
But remember, most of them had never even seen the temple, having been born in exile. But they could see the ruins all around them, and they could hear the elders weeping for what had been lost. All this is in the book of Ezra. A few years later, in 536, they completed the foundation of the temple. They had a great celebration. You can read about that in Ezra as well. But then they had ceased construction, which here's what you have to appreciate was completely understandable. I mean, they had to rebuild their own homes, right? Their own lives, their own families. And the problem was not a lack of resources, but where they were investing. The temple, it would have to wait. We'll get to it. We know it's important. But first things first. Well, one year passes, then five, then ten. Sixteen years later, in 520 B.C., the Lord raises up an old man named Haggai. And we know he was old because he had seen the first temple. So the old man stands up, and here's what he says. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Sarah said, and then the Lord gave me Haggai 1 verse 4. What is it that's so gripped her in that verse? And what is it about our context that inhibits us from hearing what she heard? Well, first of all, it's hard for us to appreciate the significance of the temple in the Bible's story. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the temple that assumes a central role in the people of God. The Garden of Eden was in many ways considered a cosmic temple. That's why years later, symbols of Eden are stitched in to the curtains of the temple garments. We're studying the book of Exodus right now. To a Jewish reader, the climax of Exodus is not the people being set free from slavery in Egypt. It's the back half of the book that seems rather boring to us, which details the construction of a portable tabernacle, a portable temple. From David and Solomon, the temple was not only the symbol of national identity, it represented the presence of the Lord in their midst. The place where heaven and earth meet, where God's holy presence, God's glory, uniquely dwelt. You read through the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the prophets, they talk about the temple, the temple, the temple. And this theme continues into the New Testament. These lines don't hit our ear because the temple is no longer central to our self-understanding. But has it ever struck you that Jesus said about himself... This is in the Gospel of Matthew. I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. It's odd. People don't often compare themselves to a building. The Apostle Paul calls Jesus, quote, the chief cornerstone. That's odd. We don't often compare people, except NFL linemen, to large boulders. And then one of the most electrifying comments Jesus ever made in the Gospel of John this is chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will three days I will raise it up. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But then John adds, verse 21, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Whoa, Jesus in the flesh. 
was claiming to be the one in whom God's glory resides, the meeting place of heaven and earth. I am one greater than the temple. And as if this weren't mind-blowing enough, the Apostle Paul then extends that picture to the body of Christ, the church, whom he calls, this is Ephesians 2, verse 20, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. That's why Peter calls those who belong to Christ, quote, living stones. Living, see, we're, now we're being compared to boulders, living stones. He's picking up this temple language. It's what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he writes, this is 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? See, Sarah didn't have our cultural baggage surrounding this word church. So when she read Haggai, she heard God calling her to give her life to building the body of Christ, the church in China. In other words, she heard a call to mission. She just grasped, Haggai, this is about the mission of God. You want a missions text? You don't have to turn to Matthew 28. You open up to Genesis and you read right through Revelation, where you can trace this theme of the temple and the mission of God. And the shifting meaning of the temple from a house of God to the people of God. The temple was always about the mission of God and the calling of God's people to mediate God's presence to the world. Now, for a couple of you, this is interesting Bible study. Others of you, your eyes have already glazed over. I can see it. And here's my question. Why does this, for the most part, not grab our hearts and, and, and fire our imaginations like it did for Sarah in China. And I'd like to suggest that something about Sarah's context enabled, here to, enabled her to hear Haggai as it was meant to be heard. And something about our context makes it hard, if not impossible, for us to hear Haggai in the same way. We have so much cultural baggage that has glommed on to this word church that we can no longer hear it as it was meant to be heard or picture it as God intends for us to picture it. So remember when you were a kid and you had an Etch-a-Sketch? You remember that? You had an Etch-a-Sketch? Of course you did. How did you start a new drawing when you had to have an Etch-a-Sketch? How would you start it? You had to shake it. You had to shake, shake, shake. Remember to dissolve what had been on your screen in order to draw something new. Unless I do that for you, unless we shake up what calls to mind your old picture of the church, you'll just end up putting everything I say back into your old grid. And you'll walk out, business as usual, business as usual. But it won't shake your grid. You won't hear Haggai. So to help us hear Haggai, I need to expose this old grid that is so distorted how we understand ourselves as the church and our mission and have to give us a new grid from the Bible's own story to whet our imaginations for what it might look like for us to hear Haggai speaking to us today. But let's start with just this word, church. When you hear that word, what comes to mind? I'd wager that we instinctively think of a building that we've become habituated to seeing the church as a place where you go. It's in our language. Where do you go to church? 
Where's your church located? Now, some of you will just think I'm parsing words. Dr. Daryl Guder says this place where orientation manifests itself in a particular form and that we have come to see the church, he writes, as a vendor of religious goods and services. It's the place where you go to get the religious goods and services that you're looking for. Now, you may think he's putting that rather crassly, but as a sort of proof, when you move to a new town and you're looking for a new church, what do we commonly call that? Church shopping. Exactly. Exactly. With the tragic consequence that most people intuitively come to think that the church exists to serve the needs and preferences of its members. That, like a country club, it is a voluntary organization where if you're not getting what you want, you can just go to another location, another place. This was put graphically to me years ago in the first church where I served. An older lady, impeccably attired, approached me after the service, and she said, I didn't particularly care for the music today. Now, I should not have said what I said, but I said, well, fortunately, we weren't singing to you. Now, I shouldn't have said it, but that story highlights an assumption many of us make, that we've come to expect the church exists to meet our needs and serve our preferences. We offer a product in service with other local providers. Can't speak to Evansville, but in other places where I've lived, that's how many churches often grow. People leave church A for one reason or another to go to church B, which may offer a better product, and church B feels great. Jesus says there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But a friend once asked me, do you think think there is joy in heaven? Do you think the angels are rejoicing when people simply decide to move between churches? What about Sarah? I mean, what did Sarah feel? She felt an urgent burden for all the people around her, her family, her friends, her fellow students to know Jesus. And she counted the very real cost of disappointing her mother and father to give herself to the mission of God. But when the church becomes a place where it's so easy for us to lose our bearings on just what we're doing here. Besides this place where mentality, this old grid has a lot of parts, but I'll just give you one more manifestation. A confused partition a confused partition between the things of God and the things of our workaday lives. For example, a few years ago, the Pope addressed Congress. And afterward, one of the congressmen said, he needs to stay out of politics, the environment, and financial matters, and stick to religious concerns. Now, whether or not you're in sympathy with the Pope's comments, you can hear the division in that response. Let us run the country and do our business. You stick to the God stuff and stay out of public policy. As if those were hermetically sealed off circles of concern. But it's this private faith, public square, confrontation, this confusion. That's the the old grid. And when you add in this radical individualism that permeates our culture today... It makes it almost impossible to hear Haggai talking to us. We won't be unsettled by the question, and I think it's an urgent question, for any sincere American Christian 
seeking to embody faithfulness today to ask. And that is, does our view of the church correspond to God's view, to the biblical view? Do we, do we know our mission as God's people and how that relates to God's kingdom? Can, can we call to mind how these terms fit together? I'm not even asking Haggai's question, is it our highest priority? I'm asking if we even know what it means to be the church. We can't even begin to hear Haggai, much less New Testament voices that call the church the dwelling place of God, the family of God. We can't even begin to imagine what that might mean for us unless we're willing to question whether what we're doing is even close to God's intention for us. To the biblical writers, the church is not a place where. The church is not a place where. The church is a people who. So for you note takers out there, let me give you a definition. The church is a people who have been called to gather around our king, to be sent as ambassadors, emissaries in a foreign land, to embody what life lived under King Jesus looks like, to enact by proclamation and by demonstration scenes of the kingdom, to enact scenes of the kingdom as a living sign where what God wants done is done, here as it is in heaven. That is the church. A follower of Jesus is someone who has realized we turn out to be very poor kings over our own lives that life goes better when Jesus is our king. And the church is a living sign of what life lived under, new ownership, new master, a new friend, Jesus looks like. So now if you go back and look at Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You hear in that, that a life devoted to your own comfort will never bring you the contentment that you seek. It will, it will never work. Sociologists wonder today why we have more than any people group has ever had, and yet we are more anxious than any people group has ever been? Well, the answer is right there 2,600 years ago in Haggai. Now, it's easy to say this, but I submit this is a total paradigm shift for most Western Christians, away from a place where to a people who. Among other things, it means that missions is not a program of the church, which is how we're accustomed to thinking of it or speaking of it. But it's not a department or, or a weekend or a project. Because remember, the church does not exist to meet my needs or serve my preferences. It exists to be an instrument and witness of God's purposes in this world. Or as David Bosch puts it, there is church because there is mission. There is church because there is mission, not vice versa. And that's what Haggai was calling out that the mission of God had become peripheral to God's people. Not unimportant, just not as important. 
And the prophet's question still stands. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And with the statistics with which we began, it's arguable to say that this house is in ruins. But once we make the connection the Bible makes between the temple and Jesus between Jesus and his body, between his body and God's mission, once we get out of this old grid, once shake, 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 once it's been shaken up by the Bible's own story, then we are in a position to hear Haggai's challenge for us today. To put it simply, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and that's our question. In the midst of all of our other duties and responsibilities, what might that look like for us today? To make giving our life to Jesus' cause, our controlling priority. Well, here's, by way of drawing a new picture, here's just a sketch to whet your imagination. We are invited to cultivate a scriptural imagination around a scriptural mission with a scriptural expectation. A scriptural imagination around a scriptural mission with a scriptural expectation. A scriptural imagination. I first heard that term from the New Testament scholar Richard Hayes, who defined scriptural imagination as, quote, the capacity to see the world through lenses given to us in Scripture. That is a deceptively profound sentence. The capacity to see the world through the lenses given to us in Scripture. That means that you're starting to see not just part of your life, not just some of your questions, but every part of your life through the lenses of the gospel. How could that conversion of your imagination be anything but a perpetual conversion? A perpetual conversion. That means the older you get, the softer you get, the more curious you become. That's one sign, by the way, that you don't get the gospel, is that you're, you're convinced that you got it. But if it grips your imagination, you see it's a calling to see the whole, every part of your life differently. That's the beginning of a scriptural imagination around a scriptural mission. What does the Bible say is the church's mission? I like how Kevin Van Hooser puts it in his book, The Drama of Doctrine. He calls the church to perform the gospel's script in our world. Here's how he puts it. The church is a company of players gathered together to stage scenes of the kingdom of God for the sake of the watching world. The direction of doctrine thus enables us as individuals and as a church to render the gospel public by leading lives in creative imitation of Christ. And I like how he puts it. We are to stage scenes of the kingdom of God, of here's what life lived under King Jesus looks like. We are people who share our resources with eye-popping generosity. We share our hearts, our secrets, our shames, our griefs. We are people who stay and face pain and work through conflict. We are people who love our enemies and extend forgiveness. We are people who don't fit political categories. We don't fit. In some ways, our sexual ethic looks pretty conservative. In other ways, our concern for justice and the poor may look pretty liberal. 
We don't fit political boxes because our primary allegiance is life under King Jesus. In our work, we creatively look for ways to partner with God in the renewal of the particular corner of the garden where God has called us to toil. Now, if you just begin to grasp that, that ought to send you, whether you're a barber or a bus driver, a teacher or a physician, in real estate or otherwise, that ought to send your imagination sparking. It's not necessarily calling you to do something different, but your why, your why gets challenged and your bottom lines get complexified. Incidentally, that's why this, is, <clears throat> this calling to scriptural mission is hard, uh, most of all, ironically, for church leaders and church boards. It was the great uh, writer Upton Sinclair who once wrote, It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Because we're talking about renovating how we do things. This new grid flips our traditional understanding of the church on its head. Instead of being a part of your life or a place where you go, a vendor of religious goods and services, the church and the mission of God becomes becomes the narrative scaffolding. It becomes the controlling story by which you begin to make sense and prioritize all other aspects of your life. It just changes how you go about your workaday lives. My, my wife lived in Sierra Leone, Africa for three years. When you live as a missionary in a foreign country, you know that mission envelops all aspects of your life. From the conversations you have with strangers and neighbors, to the new foods you are offered and that you taste as a measure of hospitality. Okay. Even the inconveniences of life, electricity problems, no hot water, car trouble, buses always late. She said it didn't bother her how people drove in Sierra Leone. It terrified her, but it didn't upset her because she knew my primary citizenship is elsewhere. What does that have to do with us? Well, the Bible doesn't say that you and I will be citizens of heaven one day. What does it say? It says that our citizenship is in heaven now, that eternity is not all far in the future, But eternity is now in session. That means it's calling you to do something very countercultural in Evansville, and that's that you begin to see yourself, even if your family has been here for generations, you still see yourself as an expat, an exile. Sunday worship, that's just a gathering of exiles getting ready to go out for another week on mission together in our city. That's one of the reasons it might be harder to follow Jesus in southern Indiana than most places when 84% of Vanderburg County claims to follow Jesus. But if even a fraction of that 84% were committed to what we're talking about this morning, a scriptural imagination with a scriptural mission, imagine how different our city could be. The applications of this reimagining church are limitless. They're limitless, but I'll just pick one. We are accustomed to think of our ministry work as maybe our volunteering on a Sunday. But don't you see, don't you see, you are not doing your local church a favor 
Especially when the Lord is telling us the only way we will ever find uh, contentment is service beyond self. So whatever you might do in a building is just the tiniest tip. It's just the beginning of this mission. And I think it's worth asking, have we reduced this glorious invitation to join King Jesus on his mission? Have we reduced that to going to a building a few times a month? Statistically speaking, most of us will remain expats in Evansville. But you can live just as missionally here. It starts with having the courage to ask, what might it look like for me to embody faithfulness to God's mission in the garden where He has called me to toil? And as we do... Look how chapter 1 of Haggai ends. I didn't read it, but if you'll look in verse 13. Then Haggai spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you. He gives them this grand charge and challenge. He says, I am with you. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And then they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. Now, what is the last thing Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew? He didn't say, All authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, so now go and relax in your own paneled house. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me, and I am with you. So now go and make disciples. Along the way, Jesus says, I build, I will build my church. And the remnant, those who are not asleep, will still hear his voice. Your spirit will be stirred. I am with you always. That's a good one-sentence definition of what it means to know Christ. Friendship with the risen Jesus, to whom belongs all authority in heaven and on earth. That's our captain. That's who says, now go. I'm with you always. That's the church. How could we be business as usual? I mean, could anything be more exciting than to be united with the one who says, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me. Now go. Go on mission with me. Could any cost be... uh, not be worth it. Sarah told her parents, much as I love you, God's mission must come first. Her mother protested, you'll be arrested. Sarah explained to her that Jesus too was arrested, tortured, even killed by his government. But she said, he is more precious to me than anything because now I know I was more precious to him than even his own life, which he laid down for me. So how then can I not make my life completely expendable to Jesus? said this young college student. Now, I'm going to have to leave a scriptural expectation for another time because if you're tracking with me, you are asking right now a very important question. Okay, if this is the church's calling, what you've sketched this morning, isn't that just a recipe for disillusionment and cynicism over our very real failure to live up to this vision? Well, that is a very important question. That deserves a long answer. So I'll just say it in one sentence. 
You will never learn to love the church until you have been thoroughly disillusioned by your ideal. And along the way, you learn that the church, the cross is not only the church's message, the cross is the church's method. And that ought to humble us, it ought to reset our expectations, and it ought to give us a very unusual confidence to move out in hope. Well, I need to close, and I want to close with a story that ties some of these images together. One of the best shows on television right now is The Bear. If you watch it, a pastor did not recommend it from the pulpit. Pretty rough show, not of course language. But a dear friend of mine who knows I'm interested in reimagining what the church should look like today said, watch the bear. And when I first started watching, I was bewildered by the recommendation. The show turns around the main character, Carmi, a.k.a. the bear. Carmen grew up in Chicago, became a James Beard award-winning chef, one of America's best restaurants, but he has now come home to run the family sandwich shop after his older brother, whom he thought he knew, whom he thought he was his best friend, took his own life. And the show opens with Carmen in a dream approaching a caged bear. And this bear is just growling and snarling. And we understand that inside Carmen, too, is all kinds of anger and grief and rage. And if he lets that pain out like a bear, that it will devour, it will eat him up, it will rampage, it will destroy. The kitchen that Carmen takes over is filled with the most dysfunctional bunch of misfits. Racially diverse, in debt, broken families, no emotional regulation, full of cursing, cynicism, constantly venting. Most of them are not all that likable. And it's a real question of whether or not this place is even going to make it with these people. But over the course of the season, this group shows a tremendous amount of honesty and loyalty and vulnerability. And as you learn each character's story, you begin to care about them. You don't know why they stick together, but you get the feeling they stick together because they need one another. They need this community so much. And in the end, you realize this is a kind of family gathered in grief, in their case, in solidarity around their love for their deceased leader, but that they really love one another. But in the show, this is a costly, messy, food-on-the-floor kind of love. As in most restaurants, before each shift, they share a common meal. It's called family dinner. Now, it's hard to picture that in southern Indiana, but I'll tell you what I know. There's some caged bears out there. There's some deep pain locked away. And you too are afraid of what will happen if you get in touch with that and let it out. So it stays cooped up, coped with. We wonder what would really happen if we truly got to know one another. Well, we'd find out we're just, we are just as dysfunctional. That we too are a dysfunctional band of misfits. We're just not as colorful as the characters in the bear. A little more reserved. But I'll tell you what else I know is that people here also are dying 
to experience this kind of community. One of vulnerability and loyalty and compassion. Where we too gather, in our case, not in grief, but in gratitude, around love for our leader, who also died, but has risen. And where we really are, imperfectly as we are, learning how to love one another, as Jesus first loved us. And it is a messy, costly, blood-on-the-floor kind of love. And you know what? It doesn't have to be reimagined because we too share a common meal. It's our family dinner. And we too are called to enact stage scenes of the kingdom of God to invite other broken people around our open table. A new family mediating the presence of God to our hungry city. You know what that is? That's the church. That's the church. And that's the gospel, even from the prophet Haggai. Let those who have ears hear. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, speak to us. Speak and may, and may we listen. Even through your prophet, Haggai, you raised up 2,600 years ago. Lord, speak to our hearts today and challenge us to reimagine our calling as your church, your people, this invitation to enact scenes of the kingdom and the courage to wonder together what that might look like for us. Jesus, assure our hearts that you are with us. Even those caged bears, we can let them out. You are with us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.